I had a box of crayons. She had a piano keyboard. We would both taste the same food. I would show her what color it was. She would play what chord it was. We freaked out everybody in the restaurant. <laughs> hey, I'm Christine. And I'm Gracie. We both have a brain condition called synesthesia, and we love it. It blends different senses together and makes our lives richer and more colorful. But my brother Ian, he's a skeptic. No, it is totally real. <laughs> so on this show, we meet incredible people and explore their amazing stories about how synesthesia is changing the world. From artists to musicians to thought leaders and scientists, people with synesthesia are everywhere, and they make our lives more colorful. Colorful. More. I hate Colorful. Welcome to Sandpod. It worked. <laughs> Jesse, your laughing makes it harder. <laughs> hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Ian, and I'm here with Grace and Christine. Hello. And we're here with a really exciting guest. Uh, we're here with Sean Day, who's the founder of the Synesthesia List, which is an international forum for synesthetes and synesthesia researchers. And he's the former president of the America Synesthesia Association. He's also the current president of the International Association of Synesthetes, Artists, and Scientists, and he's been in that position for about five years now. Really pleased to have you. Thank you. I'm delighted to do this. Well, so to start off, what was your first experience with synesthesia? How did it come on your radar? How did you discover uh, it for yourself? Uh, there's at least two or three different points to that. I have what you might call congenital synesthesia, so born that way type of situation. So I was aware that I was visually seeing things out in front of me for music, at least by the time that I was five years old. According to my parents, I was talking about colors and shapes for music when I was four or maybe even younger. I realized that I was doing this by the time that I was about six years old. By the time that I was about eight years old, I realized that other people in my family didn't see colors. There was nobody else talking about music, shapes, things like that. And my family was very musical. Everybody in my family plays a number of different musical instruments. But we're also very well-read in science. By the time that I was about eight or nine years old, I realized that I've got a neurological condition that other people in my family don't have. Just like my younger sister has red hair and nobody else in my family has red hair. So genetic. Some people get it. Some people don't. By the time that I was about 10 years old, it occurred to me that, okay, if it is a genetic condition, other people out there in the world have red hair. So other people out there in the world probably also have this condition. So by the time that I was nine or 10 years old, I, I was searching for other people that have it. I have been ever since. That's amazing. Wow, that's incredible. That thought process is incredibly self-aware. That's very impressive. Great use of deductive skills. Yes. Yes. So when did you first find out what synesthesia was? I didn't encounter the word synesthesia itself until I was about 20 or 21 years old when a professor in one of my anthropology classes 
did a little couple minutes worth of sidestepping to talk about different cultures' perceptions of different sensoria. And all of a sudden, she was talking about synesthesia for about a minute or two. And, hey, I recognize that. So after class, since this professor was also a family friend, went to her office, which was right across the hall from my mother's office, and said, do you have any more information on synesthesia? And she said, no, I don't. So what you're going to do is go to the library, and within the next week, find me at least five articles. And that's how I started researching synesthesia academically. Beforehand, I had just been mainly searching through the music community, all the musicians that I knew, trying to find other musicians. By the age of 21 or so, I had found a couple. But once I started doing academic research of synesthesia, got into it a lot more. So you mentioned that you have congenital synesthesia, as you call it. Is there a different sort of synesthesia or a different origin of synesthesia than just inheriting it? Yes. Yes, there are. You can acquire some types, not all types, but some types of synesthesia through brain injury. Like, for instance, a stroke or during epileptic seizures or from a tumor or a gunshot wound or a concussion or something like that. Um, You can also very temporarily acquire some types of synesthesia through hallucinogenic drugs like LSD or peyote or ayahuasca. Um, You can also attain a little bit of temporary synesthesia, kind of, sort of, If you go into meditative trance, it's very difficult to attain, been there, done that, but it can be done. As long as I mention that, I'll also mention that almost everybody, not everybody, but almost everybody, experiences a type of synesthesia probably about three or four times a year at least when they're nodding off to sleep. Hmm. Like you're staying up late watching a movie or nodding off or something like that. And all of a sudden there's a loud knock on the door or a thunderclap or something like that. Not only do you hear it, but you see it. Or you might feel it on your arm or something like that. And it's not even really considered synesthesia per se, but it it is. Mm. Guys, I have synesthesia. You've got it. (laughs) I've got it. Now a member of the club. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So it seems like after you left your professor's office, your interest in synesthesia continued to grow. What was it about the study of synesthesia that so intrigued you? And what were some of the early discoveries that maybe helped you desire to continue that research? Okay, you have opened a can of worms here. I'll tell you the actual, what the actual real story is because I'm no longer really embarrassed about telling the story. Ever since I was maybe like five or six years old, as I said, my family is very well-read and science fiction fans, Star Wars, Star Trek, I remember watching Neil Armstrong take his first step on the moon. And so from the time that I was five or six, I wanted to meet aliens. Hmm. I wanted to be one of the people who talked to aliens. Well, as I got a little bit older, 
I realized that my chances for that were pretty darn slim. <laughs> I could go on into linguistics, which I did. I did major in linguistics, got my PhD in it. Right? But I figured that, okay, I'm not going to be the linguist who talks to aliens. But then as I was moving toward this, I realized that, okay, instead of trying to meet the aliens out there from another planet, why not instead look at the aliens right here on Earth? Mm -hmm. Other people from other cultures. Yeah. When I was at university, I majored in anthropology, cultural anthropology, mm -hmm. and linguistics, talking to people from other cultures. Now, during the time that I was studying anthropology, a big thing in the field was the whole movement of, instead of an anthropologist traveling on off deep into the Amazons or on into the highlands of Papua New Guinea, new trend was to study your own culture. And especially um, if you had some insights into a subculture mm -hmm. of your own culture, study that subculture. Mm -hmm. And so there were anthropologists studying prison cultures, or what, gay and lesbians or something like that. And I figured, okay, hey, say I've always been interested in meeting other synesthetes anyway. Let's study mm -hmm. the worldwide synesthete culture, study differences in synesthetes around the world, and try to meet synesthetes around the world. So got interested in synesthetes because I wanted to talk to weirdos. <laughs> to Earth's aliens, yes. That research then, is that what was the impetus for your synesthesia list then? Can you tell us more about the list? Because Gracie and I were blown away when we stumbled across the list. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, yeah, although there's not too much of a story there. When I was in university working toward my PhD, I was working on a PhD in linguistics, and it's still around. But during that time, a big thing in linguistics was a whole listserv known as the linguist list, which connects linguists all over the world, and linguistic researchers can trade questions back and forth. And uh, I was a member of that and getting things on linguistics or such. But as I moved toward my doctoral dissertation, which was on synesthesia, mm -hmm. I thought, well, okay, I've got questions. I want to reach out to other researchers. All of a sudden, it sort of hit me. How about creating a listserv for other researchers? By that time, I knew of maybe like four or five other researchers who are also doing research on synesthesia. And then as that idea hit me, another idea came to my mind, which was, well, okay, how about a listserv service for synesthetes to talk to other synesthetes? Yeah. Hey, that would be an interesting idea, too. And then all of a sudden it hit me, or actually it was brought to my attention, that these two ideas were not mutually exclusive. <laughs> Put them together and do something that the linguist list wasn't doing, right? Something totally different, which was, right, create a listserv for both the synesthetes and the researchers together so that the researchers could ask each other questions, the synesthetes could ask each other questions, synesthetes could ask researchers questions, researchers could ask synesthetes questions, every which direction, put it all together. And this would be probably one of the 
first types of services which has neuroscientists and the people that they're studying asking each other questions right there mm-hmm. in the service. Right. Mm-hmm. That's cool. What are some things about the list that surprised you as it got started or some happy discoveries along the way? Uh, a couple of the happy discoveries were that the interest started spreading worldwide. Now, I created the synesthesia list over 20 years ago. Hmm. It has, coming toward 2,000 members, representatives from every continent on Earth. Yeah, that's cool. That is including Antarctica. Wow. (laughs) That's awesome. Another happy thing about it is that parents encourage their children to join. And there are young children who are becoming very well educated in their synesthesia. A 10-year-old can ask one of the top experts in the world a question and darn well probably we'll get an answer. That's super cool. (laughs) That's a very cool thing. In some ways, you're like the real life version of Amy Adams' character in the movie Arrival. She's one of the leading linguists in the the world and she's called in because these weird monoliths start appearing, levitating over the earth and she ends up finally making contact and speaking with the aliens. But you're doing kind of the real life corollary or equivalent, which is you're you're doing, you know, the closest thing you can do to that. Yeah, 10-year-olds are aliens in their own way. (laughs) Except the difference is I'm one of the aliens. (laughs) (laughs) Which maybe gives even more insight into discoveries that can be made in in Hmm. communicating with the other aliens. (laughs) I like this. (laughs) Did the list lead to any breakthroughs or new understandings about synesthesia after it was begun? Oh, yes. All kinds of new discoveries, all kinds of bursting bubbles, getting rid of a lot of misconceptions, which it's still doing, very quickly revealing that there were dozens and dozens of different types of synesthesia, revealing very quickly that poetry and language, synesthetic metaphors in language and poetry, have nothing to do with actual synesthesia. Um, Synesthesia List helped in setting up laboratory research programs, which helped to confirm that for some types of synesthesia, their brains actually are structured a little bit different. It is neurological. Helped confirm that they're not just making it up. They're not delusional. (laughs) Also helped to confirm that at least some synesthetes, around about 10% of the ones who claim that they are seeing things out there, they actually are seeing things out there. Hmm. Doesn't mean that there is something out there, but it does mean that their brain is operating that way. They are seeing something out there. I'm one of those types. Yeah. Hmm. What are some of the newer misconceptions that you've encountered? Oh, Oh, goodness. Um, I'd probably have to stop and think. Some of them get a little bit technical. A new hot topic for the researchers in the last four or five years are a group of synesthetes known as mirror touch synesthesia. Mm-hmm. The synesthete sees somebody else experience some type of touch, and they feel it themselves. 
There are all kinds of misconceptions about how that works, including a lot of people who claim one way or another to be empaths. This is my own personal asinine opinion. Empaths do not exist. That's magic. They are not actually really feeling what that other person is feeling. What they are doing is they are creating their own mental construct of what they think is going on. And then for the synesthete, their own mental construct gets connected to an actual perception. And we can test this. So going back to what the synesthesia list and current research is doing, that's one of the current myths that we're trying to break is that mere touch synesthetes are actually really experiencing the emotions and touch of other people. No, they're not. (laughs) (laughs) That's part of the research that I'm trying to set up now, but the whole COVID thing is getting in the way. We can test this very easily, for example, by having people watch zombie movies. Now you're talking. What does it feel like to have your face bitten off? (laughs) With a zombie movie, hack and slash movies too, right? Some frat boy gets his arm chopped off. It's always the frat boy. It has to be a frat boy. They are the weakest links. Gets his arm shaft off and yells and screams, right? Does the mere touch synesthete feel that? Well, okay, it's not real. Right. Yeah. Well, just for the audience and maybe for me as well, for my own benefit, what would an empath be definitionally if they did exist? A real empath would be somebody who, upon seeing somebody else touched or hurt or such actually truly really does feel that other person's emotions, feels that other person's pains, feels that other person's touches on the body. Not just feel an equivalent to that thing, but feel the actual pain or sensation. If they actually are feeling the pain and emotion, it would be totally and completely equivalent and it would be accurate. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas... With a mere touch synesthete, we can show it's not accurate. Right. It seems like a lot of the work that you've done and even interviews you've done that I've appreciated do a really good job of perhaps demythologizing synesthesia. There's still a lot of wonder and mystery about it that I think can make people perhaps have a vision of it that is overly romanticized or sentimental. And one of my favorite things you've written was in the Oxford Handbook of Synesthesia, where you talk about how synesthesia doesn't necessarily make you a better artist, and that in your own life, it actually distracted you for a time from true artistic excellence. So can you talk about that a little more? Um, Yeah, I'm not sure exactly where to begin or what to go into. What I usually say on that topic is having some type of synesthesia does not bestow upon you any type of talent. For example, if I have a guitar and I have music-related synesthesia, which I do, I've got both, the fact that I've got synesthesia doesn't make me a better guitar player. Mm -hmm. And if I want to be a good guitar player, I need to learn how to play the damn guitar. I need to get on stage and perform. I need to have the experience of being in a rock band. I have to have the experience of doing some really crappy music in front of audiences and maybe every (laughs) once in a while doing some really good music. Talent 
comes from training, experience, and a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. Synesthesia might give you a different perspective on how to approach the hard work. Right. Yeah. Along the same lines, if I have, for example, graphing-related synesthesia, colored letters, colored words, something like that, it might give me some new insights for creating a new type of poetry or word choice for different things or such. But if I want to be a successful published author, I still have to do the damn work. Let's say that I want to be a professional musician. I want to be a great guitar player. And my type of synesthesia is touch to flavor. Helpful. (laughs) It's real cool. Different touches on different parts of the body produce different flavors in your mouth. That might be a real fun type of synesthesia. But how is that going to help me be a better guitar player? Mm -hmm. Just having a type of synesthesia, it's not necessarily going to be so talent on you along the same lines. If I've got maybe like musical chord to visual synesthesia, might help if I want to be a piano player or a guitar player. Doesn't help as much if I want to be a professional chef. Mm -hmm. One more thing, and then I'll shut up on this. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things about talking about synesthesia and talent is that we don't have a good definition of talent in the first place. But then also, when we do talk about talent, we usually talk about musicians, singers, or painters, artists. We don't talk about all kinds of other talents. For example, If you know anything about real mathematics, Hmm. that's talent. Physics is talent. Automotive repair is a talent. You need to know a lot of technical stuff, but it gets to a point where you need the talent to be able to think outside the box as to what might be wrong with that engine. Mm -hmm. We never even mention things like carpentry. Right. Cabinet making or electrical engineering, computer programming. Those are talents. I mention all those type of things because I know synesthetes who use Mm -hmm. their synesthesia in those professions. Hmm. Mm. It would be very interesting to talk to someone who is an electrical engineer and a synesthete and how they can use that in that sphere, actually. I'd love to hear more about that. There's not too many people who talk about it The ones who do talk about it are mainly the musicians. I was interacting with a professional chef who was trying to come out of her shell about talking to other professional chefs about her synesthesia. Even something like that. Hmm. Even authors don't usually talk about it that much. Have you discovered kind of why that is? I've seen all kinds of different reasons for this. Some people were just very shy. Mm-hmm. Other people, I've encountered a lot of synesthetes who have had really bad situations when they were children mm-hmm. where they might have once or twice talked about their synesthetic experiences. And I've seen everything from parents and family dismissing it, laughing it off, to uh, parents and family having the child locked up in an institute in a padded room. 
Oh, my goodness. That does exist. I know of cases where an eight- or nine-year-old is just talking about seeing colored letters and numbers, and the kid ends up in a padded cell. Wow, that's so sad. On drugs, because the parents are so scared of this. I've also encountered cases where the parents are highly religious, and so they literally demonize synesthesia. Then we've got total opposite situations, like my own situation, I knew from a young age, my own situation was somewhat of an anomaly, because my family, we're all freaks and proud of it. From the youngest age, I was brought up to be totally iconoclastic and proud to freak out others. This podcast is brought to you by Distant Moon. Distant Moon is a new media company that specializes in crafting cutting-edge content and storytelling for a world that's tired of all the noise. We like to say that video views are fine, but emotional connection is way better. That's why companies like Google, Chobani, Booking.com, Stella Artois, Manchester City Football Club, and the FBI, yeah, that FBI, have all entrusted us with telling their stories on film and video. At the end of the day, our driving mission is to create clutch content that makes the world a better place with cutting edge brands and movements who are improving the world. That's what we call media production for a new era. Visit us and get in touch at distantmoonmedia.com. In this vein of people being kind of unwilling to discuss their synesthesia or not knowing how to speak about synesthesia, it would seem that the dialogue about synesthesia as something that's a relatively frequent human experience, you know, one in 20 people having it, according to current numbers, really is a fairly recent phenomenon. And you've done a lot of work in your career looking at what seem to be synesthetic connections from throughout history going, you know, all the way back to ancient civilizations like China or Greece or, you know, Egypt mm-hmm. and even earlier civilizations. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? I and others that I work with, we are trying to track down early cases of synesthesia going back in history or such. But the thing is that Synesthesia doesn't leave any traces on the bone. (laughs) No, seriously. Or at least we don't know what to look for yet. So the point being that we really can't trace things back much further than some clues that might pop up within the last millennia. Mm -hmm. As far as actual case studies of synesthesia go, we've been able to trace case studies all the way on back to 1812. So we've got over 200 years worth of academic research on synesthesia. Mm -hmm. But if we're trying to find out whether somebody who lived a thousand years ago, 2000 years ago, was a synesthete or not, that gets a lot more difficult. Mm -hmm. Not to be uh, pompous or whatever here, but I'm probably considered to be 
the authority on this, or at least one of the top two experts, toward trying to make a determination as to whether the way somebody is talking about certain perceptions mm-hmm. indicates that they have synesthesia or not. Doing that, been able to make some educated guesses about, for example, uh, Japanese poets from over a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. And a couple of Chinese authors from almost 2,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Certain things from Peruvian art way on back before the Inca. But beyond that, it's just really hard to tell. Yeah. You showed some links between Aristotle making between, I think it was um, color and taste that he wrote about in one of his works. Would that be the sort of thing that might indicate synesthesia? Uh, My colleague, Dr. Yovansky, did more on that than I did. We sort of borrowed some of his stuff. But uh, actually, no, that would not be synesthesia. Just about every culture has some type of taught synesthetic, quote-unquote, connections. Hmm. Some of them are inherited through history or such. Others, they're developed because they're convenient, they're fun, children's play or such. So what Aristotle's got going on, he wasn't displaying his own personal synesthesia. He was just talking about a general cultural convention that was something taught to little school children back during his age around the Mediterranean. I could give you other really easy, convenient examples of similar type of things that were taught today. Hmm. They're not synesthesia, they're culture. Hmm. Culture-based associations. I believe this was part of your PhD research and dissertation about synesthetic metaphors. We use these terms all the time, right? And they're so ingrained in our language that it was a sharp smell or I'm feeling green with jealousy. Is it possible that synesthetes were potentially ones who coined these terms because they understood those cross metaphors in a way that others didn't? That right there... That was the whole premise, the whole question of my doctoral dissertation, which was Mm -hmm. whether synesthetic metaphors like a sharp smell or green with envy, whether they actually are reflecting the influence of real synesthetes upon language or whether, no, it's just language, it's just invention. And the answer is, no, it's just language, it's just invention. If you look at what type of synesthetic metaphors there are in different languages, they don't match up at all with the type of synesthesia they are or how actual real synesthesia work. I could give a real easy, convenient example of like the difference between synesthetic metaphors or cultural constructs and actual real synesthesia. You're familiar with gumdrops, right? If I give you a green gumdrop, what flavor is that gumdrop going to be? Lime. Cotton candy. No, just kidding. <laughs> Lime. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I give you a yellow gumdrop, what flavor is it likely going to be? Lemon. Lemon. Okay. Now, every synesthete is brought up in at least one culture with at least one language. So they're learning that language. They're learning that culture. I was brought up in a bunch of different cultures with a couple of different languages or such. For me, if you give me a green jelly bean, I'm going to expect that it tastes like lime. But 
that's the same for you and for me and for my neighbor next door and for everybody all around here. You're taught that. You go to the store and you're taught that. Okay, but I have flavor to color synesthesia. So put the green jelly bean in my mouth and taste the lime and the flavor of lime makes me see a color. What color? Green. No, <laughs> but the, the flavor of lime is mid-level blue. Hmm. Yellow is lemon. If I put the lemon jelly bean in my mouth and taste lemon, what color do I see? Red. No, a different shade of blue. Interesting. Different hmm. shade of blue. Lemon is a light sky blue or such. That's me. If I ask other people, they're going to answer something different because real synesthesia is quite individualistic. I'm operating in both systems at once. I'm operating in the culturally taught system, and I'm also operating in my own synesthesia perception. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, I often wonder, is that individualistic nature of synesthesia that's very kind of subjective in a case-by-case situation, does that make the science more difficult than other forms of scientific study? And as a corollary, is that perhaps one of the reasons why historically synesthesia has been uh, either less trusted or maybe kind of have scientists snub their noses at it in history? Uh, yeah. Initially, going back like 30 years ago and beforehand, one of the big problems with synesthesia research was that there was this assumption that all synesthetes would have uniformly the same perception. If you saw a color for the letter A, it would all be the same color. If you saw a color for the sound of a trumpet, everybody would see the same color. Although, as I mentioned beforehand, we had case histories of synesthesia going all the way on back to 1812. All you had to do is just actually look at the case histories and you see almost immediately that it's very individualistic. But the researchers weren't looking at that. They were just assuming that everything was going to be the same. Mm. That caused all kinds of problems because they kept on encountering that it wasn't the same. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> <laughs> what Richard Cytolik's initial book on synesthesia uh, sort of broke open the whole thing that synesthesia is quite individualistic, and he got the idea across. Slowly, gradually, he got the idea across, right? Yeah. To your other question, nowadays, the individuality-ness, or whatever you want to call it, of synesthesia, it only causes problems for the researchers who are still stuck in that mode of thinking that everybody has to be the same. Hmm. But most of the researchers who actually get into it a little distance start realizing that, no, some of the underlying neurology, some of the underlying genetics, some of the underlying causations might be the same or similar. But if you move to a different level of things, that similarity in the causation is what's going to cause individuality in hmm. the actual manifestation of synesthesia. If you accept that and operate from that mode, which isn't really that difficult to do. You just have to start doing it. If you start operating from that mode, 
the science becomes pretty easy and it becomes a lot more enjoyable because the facts out there start supporting what you're thinking instead of you're constantly being contradicted by the fact that it ain't all the same. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, and so my understanding of the scientific method is that a huge portion of science is based on repeatability of the experiments, right? So what was the discovery or what was the breakthrough in terms of discovering that could then be repeated that made synesthesia an actual kind of hard science that could be studied and treated as a hard science? A lot of different things along the way sort of built up toward it being a hard science. So it's difficult to hit any one thing. Sure. But if I was going to look at one thing that sort of like was a game changer on it all, was when Satoic and others following after him started doing brain scans of synesthes and were able to show from the brain scans that there actually was something different going on in the brain. Right. right? Yeah. That there actually were perceptions being generated, like visual perceptions in uh, what's known as the V1, V2, V4 area of the brain back in the occipital lobe, back of the head. Those brain scans made a big difference because part of the big problem with synesthesia research is the whole question of whether people are just being imaginative. Right. They think they might be seeing things. They're making poetic connections. Or is there actually really something going on in their head? Now, the thing is, if you interview a synesthete, you get their statements, you get their reactions, but... Are they telling the truth? Is it believable? The whole thing about the brain scans, that gave us a separate third-party, outside, impersonal statement of whether there actually is something truly going on or not. Right. Now, instead of taking the synesthete's word for it, we can take the magnet's word for it. (laughs) But what if the magnet's lying? No, just kidding. (laughs) No, seriously, that is one of the big questions. Really? What if our technology is giving us some false readings, but we've developed a whole bunch of other technology along the way, and Mm -hmm. there's different types of brain scans. And with that technology, we can go on back and correct things. If you're doing good science, real science, then even if science is telling you something, you keep on questioning it. Right. That's what science is. And we keep on testing it, we're getting the same results, which is that there is actually something there in the brain that's different. Look, I get it. You're tired of the ads, you're tired of poorly made videos on the web, and you can't wait to slam the skip button on YouTube into the core of the earth, or at least into your desk. But what if advertising and media could be entertaining and informative? What if it could actually make the world a better place? Well, that's our mission at Distant Moon. We think the best marketing for a brand or movement is actually just plain good-hearted, human-focused storytelling. So if you want to partner with a company creating clutch content that actually makes audiences want to engage with your company, nonprofit, movement, or story, hit us up at Distant Moon. 
We're the filmmakers and storytellers behind many of the world's most successful brands, nonprofits, and campaigns that you've seen out in the world. We're kind of like the Wizard of Oz, uh, but if the wizard was actually, you know, doing cool crap that made the world a better place. So visit us and get in touch at distantmoonmedia.com. So you recently edited and published a book with 30 interviews with leading scientists, artists. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about where there's some obvious scientific consensus on synesthesia and where there's still some mystery or some disagreement as to how it works or how to define it or what research should look like in the future. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I think you brought up a question that's very difficult for me to answer, but I'll see what I can do on this one. Um, there's general consensus now on some very basic things, like, for instance, there's generally a consensus that we can actually see four or five types of real synesthesia. There's consensus that with interview techniques such as what I do, we can get a fairly good idea as to whether somebody actually is a synesthete or not. There's consensus that synesthesia is very individualistic. Uh, we can just do grapheme tests for that, tests that we can do on like five-year-olds and six-year-olds and show that synesthesia is quite individualistic. So there's consensus that there's probably around at least 70 different types of synesthesia. But if we get into other things, things where there's a lot of debate, a lot of discussion, one of the big debates was at that conference that we had last October in Moscow. The question of whether or not everybody has some level of synesthesia or not, and it's just sort of a gradual continuum as to how much you have, hmm. or whether there's sort of a plateau jump. Right. Where the most recent research is indicating that almost everyone can experience synesthesia sometimes. For instance, when you're falling asleep. Or if you're taking hallucinogenic drugs. Why does peyote, for example, make some people experience synesthesia? The potential is there, but it's only activated by the drugs. And then mm -hmm. once the drug wears off, it's gone again. Mm -hmm. So there's indication that everybody might have it, but if everybody has it, then is it just a gradual buildup, or is it sort of like all of a sudden there's some type of difference which differentiates the synesthete from the non-synesthete? Right. Mm -hmm. That's a real big debate. Yeah. There are some other debates, some things about um, mere touch, mm -hmm. whether there really needs to be a sharp distinction between people who have mere emotions mm. and people who have mere touch. Mm -hmm. Right. That's interesting. Mm. If you could have another type of synesthesia that you don't currently have or experience, what type would you have? Would you choose another? People ask me that one all the time. I've encountered so many different types of synesthetes. As far as one that I envy, yeah, I only know personally, of one person who has this type. She's got flavors to musical chord. 
Hmm. Taste a certain flavor. She'll hear a musical chord. That's wow. cool. I met with her in London um, back about five or six years ago. I've got flavor to visual synesthesia. She has mm-hmm. flavor to musical chord synesthesia. Right? We got together at a Thai restaurant and filled the table with all kinds of food. I had a box of crayons. She had a laptop computer with a piano keyboard spread out. We would both taste the same food. I would show her what color it was. She would play what chord it was. We freaked out everybody in the restaurant. (laughs) People were just staring at us. I would love to have her type of synesthesia. That's cool. Yeah. That sounds like fun research. (laughs) Yeah. I need excuses to sit in Thai restaurants and just order the entire menu. Yeah, and color the whole time. That sounds like my (laughs) ideal situation. We had at least like 20 different dishes and about like five or six different drinks there. We were trying everything. That's That's awesome. I love that. I would love to have seen a video of that. And then afterwards, we went to an ice cream parlor. (laughs) Oh, man. The best. (laughs) The joy continues. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Sean, for talking to us today. Um, We really appreciate it. Yeah, we've so enjoyed it. I feel like I've learned so much. Thank you for this. This just made my day. Hey, thanks so much for listening to our show. We're having a blast making it, but we're just getting started and we need your help. If you want more episodes and to hear from some of the leading artists, thought leaders, and scientists discussing how synesthesia is shaping our world, please subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, the Apple Podcast app, or wherever you get your podcasts. That way you can get each awesome new episode automatically delivered to you. And please leave a review. That's one of the best ways for people to find our show. This show features Christine Olmsted, Grace Olmsted, and me, Ian Reed. Our producer is Alana Varley, and the show is mixed by the slightly more talented and less famous Marcus Mumford, Jesse Eastman. Our title music is by Virgil Arles, with additional music by Captain and Thad Kopeck. Sinpod is recorded and produced by Distant Moon Media. Catch you all next week. <laughs>